Hello, everyone. It's great to have you here. A little heads up on the show that follows. Hannah Christensen talks about her love of the work done by Svante Peibo, a Swedish scientist who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for his amazing work on human evolutionary history just hours after we recorded the show on Monday this week. And so when Hannah is talking about Svante's work, we had no idea that he was about to receive a phone call from the Nobel Committee. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where each week my guests from Luxembourg or more internationally bring us their wisdom on a whole range of topics. Now, as always, I hope you've had a wonderful week wherever you're listening from. And many of my guests this week are of the younger variety. I've got Kate Caragiorgiadi. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Kate. Arne Day, Morgan Charno-Peckler will come to you in a moment. And you're here under FJSL director Susanna Ehn. Lovely to have you as well, Susanna. And I've also got Dr. Hannah Christensen from Norway, who lives in Luxembourg and has done for a long time. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. It's it's Hello. really great to have you here. And I'm just going to uh, tell our guests a little bit about the conversation. We've got wonderful Dr. Hannah Christensen, who is a biologist and has come here uh, with her husband, who's also a scientist, who you might remember from my show last week, Arno Gutlab. And you're going to talk to us all about large carnivores, uh, biodiversity and Neanderthals as well. And then we've also got representatives here from the the Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg, FJSL, who have the Expo Science Luxembourg 2022 this coming weekend in the Forum Gesekneption campus with loads of participants, 17 countries around the world, and it's free for everybody to come and have a look. But Dr. Hannah Christensen, I'm going to start with you. So you're a biologist by training. Uh, your main study was ecology and big carnivores. You worked with wolves, lynx, red fox, otter, and through your PhD, you also had two children, so you've done so much. But let's start with your, your work through the PhD and the work in Norway. My PhD, I was working with uh, otters, trying to find out uh, why the otters disappeared from southern Norway at the same time as they also disappeared from Central Europe. And I had the money from the government and my stipend from the government. And uh, I engaged all the county estates to do uh, field work uh, and to find traces uh, from otters, uh, tracks and remnants, feces, uh, everything along the Norwegian coast and uh, in inland of southern Norway. And we all worked together to find uh, out uh, how it was uh, with the otter uh, population. And it was very sadly, very few left at that time. And, and not also, just in Norway. No, it was also in Central Europe. The whole of Europe was depleted with uh, otters. And why? I had to find out because it could be due to uh, increased uh, human population. It could be due to uh, competition with mink, for example, uh, built up areas, uh, pollution, not enough fish. So, but the main suspect was actually uh, toxic chemicals. And where were they coming the from? It would be coming from the industry. Mainly, we were suspecting uh, PCB, that is polychlorinated uh, chemicals, that are used, uh, were used, because now it's forbidden in France since uh, 85. It was uh, used uh, where oil should be heated up and to tolerate that heating. Uh, they added PCBs, polychlorinated beefenyls is actually mm -hmm. the name. Mm -hmm. And um, well, they started to produce this and use it since 1929. And they thought it was okay and that it was entering the environment for a decade. And what did it do to the otters? Because they accumulate in fish fat. The, and the f otter is a fish-eating specialist. They uh, accumulated also in the otters and they, they had the problems with reproduction. Like the seals, they noticed in '76 that there were so few seals in the uh, Baltic Sea that had children. Yeah. And they wonder why and they, uh, they started to 
do the autopsy of uh, seals, and they found out that uh, the uterus was deformed and they couldn't have any children. And so the same probably also happened to the otters. But uh, And so from that connection between uh, the PCB being the main suspect for the depletion in the otter and other populations uh, for similar type of animals who are fish eaters. How long did it take to stop the use of PCBs? Oh my, it, uh, you know, it took 25 years. Wow, yeah. that's shockingly yeah. awful. And it is the same with a lot of different toxic chemicals. The, you know, have to prove that they are toxic and dangerous. And then meanwhile, you have to, you know, there's a lot of companies that are strong and they earn a lot of money with these uh, chemicals. And so once that connection was made and it was legally pushed through, how long has it taken for the otter population to develop again, you know, in not just Norway, but across Europe? Yeah, it was forbidden in, uh, let's say that it was the main suspect, was really the cause of the depletion of the otter population. Uh, in Norway... It was forbidden to produce and use uh, PCBs from since 1985. Mm-hmm. And it's not, just that it's, wasn't across all of Europe. It was just Norway. No, it was at the same time also uh, across of whole Europe, more or less around that 1980-85, and uh, and then since up to now, it has just now started to recover. I so you can say. see a proper increase in the otter population. Yes. Now we start to see that it's coming back to the old places where they used to be, uh, both in Europe and uh, and in Norway, in southern Norway. Still, it's very rare in southern Norway because we had a very vital big population of otters in the north all the time because yeah. it was not so polluted. Yeah. But, I want uh, to also ask you then, <laughs> uh, we eat fish um, were humans affected by PCBs during this time? Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting question, because nobody did any any uh, survey of this. And still, I think uh, there are uh, toxic uh, as people working with toxic chemicals. They suspect that uh, some of these uh, chemicals are in actually affecting people through our consumption of fish. And uh, just related to this, I suppose, are PCBs still in our environment? Yes, because the, it takes such a long time to to remove it. Uh, and uh, it's uh, very, very slowly disappearing from the environment. So it's still in the fish, but not as much as it was earlier. But if you eat very old fish... Like, uh, for example, uh, swordfish that live for a long, tuna fish that live for a long time, they will have accumulated uh, quite a lot of PCBs. And I would not eat that. I would not eat uh, liver from cod. I would not eat too much salmon, for example. Okay, and that's good advice for, <laughs> for all kind of like mentally, mentally digesting what we should and shouldn't eat. I wanted to touch on something different, which is that you ha- you did your PhD and had two children at the same time. How was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, since I was working with otters in my PhD, I didn't do much field work myself. I had other people to do that. And uh, it's not... Like in former times, I did a lot of field work with uh, big carnivores. But at that time, I was just doing the administration and uh, doing my, some more But still less not work. easy, <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, I was uh, quite a lot uh, alone with uh, raising up my children. So uh, it Even was, harder. <laughs> uh, but I think looking back, I don't think that I remember it was very hard. <laughs> That's the, the wonder the wonder of reflection. <laughs> Maybe we forget. <laughs> I, I, I think we might, yeah. And then you mentioned the, the big carnivores. Of course, you include in that group the wild reindeer, which I didn't know till I was reading your work. They only now remain in Norway across Europe. We only have wild reindeer in Norway. Well... In Europe, uh, we are the last hold of reindeer and we have an international uh, responsibility for that uh, population. And uh, there is uh, 
in our national park, Hardangevida, for example, where there are also more. But it is all in the southern Norway. We have we still have some population of reindeer, which are today uh, quite um, in a vulnerable situation because of the climate change. Mm-hmm. They are you know they are used to the the snowy landscape in the winter. They can dig down through the snow and find the the food that they eat but now that you have uh, a lot of rain during the winter and freezing again you have a kind of layer of ice all over uh, the mountain areas and sometimes this is a difficult uh, problem for them to dig through Mm -hmm. and find food yeah that's a a really big problem that we're going to see over the coming uh, decades i'm sure and, and a terribly sad one how do you feel about biodiversity today well, it's a it's a sad uh, a sad story. I mean, <laughs> it's not uh, it's it's uh, yeah it's a really sad situation because uh, we are anthropocentric. You know, we are we are viewing everything from the human uh, situation and our needs, our use of resources. Uh, and doing this, we talked about toxic chemicals. Uh, it's nothing that we see. It's something that is uh, because we, we fertilize, uh, we have to protect our uh, um, food uh, when it's growing the from the crops, from, from uh, insects, and we spray. We use toxic chemicals, and you see that there's a, a worry about the insects and how they are decreasing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, also the bird population is decreasing, mm-hmm. uh, and so one today one million species are actually threatened uh, from extermination. And what can we do to help this situation? Yeah, this is a, like for the climatic change. It's also a big, big uh, question: what to do. I mean, it's uh, so many, uh, so many uh, different areas that we have to change our attitude and our our work to at least to be aware that uh, we have other species around that have their need, and we we ha- can't explore in the same way as we did. Uh, Speaking of other species, I want to move on to one of your other more recent uh, interests, which is Neanderthals <laughs> and the new knowledge about them. I mean, perhaps I shouldn't call them another species. <laughs> no. you, you can tell us more about how they're linked and inside us, in fact. So tell us about the work. I know that you were very interested in the work done at the Man- Max Planck Institute in Leipzig by Svante Pebo. Yes, Svante Pebo. Yeah. He's uh, <laughs> actually <laughs> Swedish. <laughs> yes, and he's working in Leipzig. So he did this work and it really excited you and interested you in the Neanderthals and the genetics uh, that he was working on, this uh, Svante Pebo. Um, so tell us about his research and what we now know about Neanderthal people. Oh, it's a big question. And, um, but uh, in my, I was mainly interested uh, in this uh, topic, and it's not my my. Uh, I'm not a specialist in in g- genetics, so it was completely new to me. But uh, reading uh, about uh, his team and what they were doing in the Max Planck Institute was really thrilling because it was such a genius way to to do uh, science. What did he do? Well, he after the the human genome was uh, deciphered, this deciphered, um, he could uh, actually go into uh, when they where they found uh, Neanderthal bones, they could make some powder out of it, and they could uh, find out what. Uh, about the genome also of the Neanderthals because it's quite similar to our own genome is less than 98% uh, uh, more uh, more than 98% uh, similar to our genome so it's just differing in some some, uh, and I believe he can even tell the eye colour and the hair colour from yeah yeah and they found out that the Neanderthal is uh, much more intelligent than we believed in earlier time because they have the same ability to they found the fox uh, again gene that they they proved that proved that they could speak like us they have their own language they had uh, probably red hair and uh, light skin blood type zero 
and they had um, the, quite a similar size of the brain as we had. Just recently, they found that uh, why how we differ actually from the Neanderthals, not except for the how they looked like it with the big uh, eyebrow. Uh, we were quite similar, but recently they also found that the modern humans, they had a little bit uh, higher uh, uh, brain proliferation of the brain uh, cells that made us maybe a little bit more intelligent. But we all have about mm. 1 to 2%, I believe, Neanderthal in us. Yeah, that's also a very interesting thing that when they checked uh, all the genome of uh, people from different parts of the world, they could see that we actually had 2 to 4% Neanderthal genes. So it must mean that we have uh, mixed. And so the Neanderthals were found all over the world, in every continent? Not in Africa. South of, uh, you know, Neanderthal, they, they moved out of Africa before the human, the modern human did. But they never went back to Africa. And so south of Sahara, there are no Neanderthal genes in the people. But in Europe, in Asia, uh, America, we all have... Uh, to 4%. And when it comes to the cave paintings, the very, very old cave paintings that we see pictures of or may have visited, some of those we now believe were also done by Neanderthal people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting also because, uh, you know, uh, we found these uh, wonderful paintings in the caves, for example, in, in Dordogne, in, in France, uh, in the north of Spain. There are a lot of different caves with uh, wonderful paintings. And uh, when, uh, when they used uh, the carbon-14 uh, method, they could uh, see that uh, uh, they were around maybe 30,000, 40,000 years old. But they couldn't use that method uh, when uh, something was more than 50,000 years old. But now they can use uh, another method, and they found that recently they found that uh, in certain caves, the not so wonderful paintings like the like the human, the modern human did, but there were engravings and uh, more abstract uh, paintings that were 67,000 years old, and that must have been made by the Neanderthals because. They have been here uh, for hundreds of thousand years, maybe four hundred thousand years, while the modern human being they only reached uh, Europe forty thousand years ago. So then they know. When it comes to researching the way in which the Neanderthals <coughs> lived, science now can give us uh, an increasingly good look at what a Neanderthal person. I say the word person, people, but I, I hope that's okay. Um, what they looked like, uh, their eye colour, their hair colour, their size. Obviously, we have some skeletal remains of so their face shape, etc. But when it comes to how they lived, what can we do there? How can science or other researchers tell us how they lived? Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, uh, um they wondered if the Neanderthals took care of each other. And they thought, no, they don't, because they just uh, left them, the dead ones here and there, and they couldn't follow the group when they were broke a leg or something. But now they have found that actually the legs have been healed, mm -hmm. and uh, it must mean that someone gave them food and so to restitute from that uh, mm -hmm. damage. And that's culture. I mean, they had their own culture. They also uh, had graves for the dead ones. They put uh, flowers around the uh, dead rabbit in, in their, you know, under their arms. They did all the things that a modern human did at that same time. It's extraordinary. It's wonderful. Well, I can't wait to see more of the work that comes out of Leipzig. And also, I know that you've written a book uh, on this and you're looking for a publisher. So tell us more about your book. Well, I was so fascinated about uh, this uh, this research uh, at the Max Planck Institute, and I, same time, there was a scientist in America that uh, they said that maybe it was possible to make a new Neanderthal today. Uh, and I thought, oh no, that's that's <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, you know, it's uh, at, from an ethical point of view, how would that be? And I thought, I make this book uh, where I introduce a Neanderthal boy. 
and and you know looking at all the ethical aspects of uh, doing such a, because it might be possible in the future but then we come up with a whole load of <laughs> questions <laughs> yes exactly because uh, there there is the also the question about reintroducing the mammut for example there are uh, scientists working with uh, uh, trying to do that. Uh, well, to me, that sounds uh, much nicer. <laughs> I don't know why, and ethically, maybe it's not correct, but I, I'd always love to see a woolly mammoth. They, they, I remember learning about them when I was a very little girl in Ireland, and uh, they, they've always appealed to me, the woolly mammoths. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but with the, this uh, Neanderthal book, I, I'm able to to uh, introduce what uh, kind of work they did at the Max Planck Institute and what we know about the Neanderthals today. And I thought it would be a very interesting uh, book for our publisher in Norway, but uh, no, they didn't accept it yet because uh, they think it's a lot of science probably and the market is very small. And oh, well, we'll see about <laughs> that. We'll see about that. We're making holes. We're making paving the way for, for science books. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much for your work and coming into RTL today to tell us about it. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk uh, to the director of Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg and also some of the participants in this upcoming event this weekend at Gisknapchen. The Lisa Burke Show. It's my great pleasure now to introduce to you the director of Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg. It's wonderful to have you here, Susanna. So tell us, if we don't already know, what FJSL is. Tell us what it is. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. It's a great pleasure for us too to be here with you, Lisa. So yeah, so, um, the Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg aims to promote sciences among young people aged between 11 and 21, so on national but also international scale. Our main activity is the National Young Fouché Contest, so the National Young Scientific Competition that we also organize each year in mid-March. So uh, the contest invites young science enthusiasts to present their extracurricular projects and compete in front of jury members. So uh, why I'm talking about the National Young Fouché Contest is because this is where our national laureates want the opportunity to showcase their achievement in the Expo Sciences Luxembourg. Which is extraordinary. It's absolutely wonderful. So this weekend at the Forum Gieseknapchen, where there's many, many schools, you've got, I think, about 69 participants. Absolutely. Over 46 projects. So um, the 12th edition of the Expo Sciences is already uh, uh, taking place uh, with a complete uh, programme of activity where... The magic of exchanging is uh, operating. Um, the audience also uh, have the chance to uh, discover uh, the project of our young scientists uh, during uh, an open dose of the exhibition. And it's free to enter. Absolutely. So today and tomorrow as of 1pm. And tomorrow uh, after the open doors, uh, we will have the uh, closing ceremony in presence of uh, the Minister of Education, um, children and Youth, but also uh, the Luxembourg National Research Fund and the European Commission with uh, many more supporters of the Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg. So it's a fantastic opportunity for these young people to come in. And I'd really like to now chat to uh, the first of the three that I have here in the studio. I've got Ekaterina Krajorjadi. Is that correct? That is correct. And you've allowed me to call you Kate now. Uh, yes, everyone does. It's <laughs> quite easier. So, Kate, you are now how old? I am turning 18 in, well, about 20 days. Okay, wonderful. Well, happy birthday in advance. And Thank you've you. done a project entitled Colour, How It Affects Emotion and Its Associations. And you've told me uh, in some notes that your mother studied fine art. You grew up surrounded by yes. art. You said that you never had a blank wall in your house. Never, there was never. colour everywhere. Yes. And that you are also studying psychology as one of your A-level choices. That is correct. So tell us, how did this idea come about? Well, um, I realized uh, after going to many friends that I might be uh, some of the, like, I might be uh, a kid that has, like, the only kid that has purple walls as a preferred, preferred, like, wall uh, room colour. Well, it was your choice. It was my choice, yeah. yes. I've had that uh, that liberty of choice since I was about six years old. My mum always wanted me to feel safe 
in um, my environment and always be feel safe in my room. So my colour for safety was purple. Right. And now that you're studying psychology, you are very interested in the idea of what colour is and how it triggers our emotional subconscious. So talk us through that psychological idea. Well, there is three aspects of colour. Um, there is how you perceive it as a person. Uh, there is the, the spectrum. So, and there is also the, which is like the white light that is given from the sun. And um, yeah, there's also how it reflects from surfaces. So for instance, leaves, uh, it's the chlorophyll that makes them green. Uh, but then again, people will see that type of green in many different ways because your brain processes it differently. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to see uh, how that process affects your emotions subconsciously. Mm-hmm. So when you enter a really bright red room, I don't think you're going to feel much safety. Uh, when you enter a blue room, you might feel more calm. So I wanted to see why that is. And, and I conducted there, a study. Yeah. And did, did you, you conducted a study? Yes. What were the results of this study? Well, in the study, I asked uh, people to tell me how they feel about each colour, give me one uh, association uh, of what they think when they think about the colour and how it makes them feel. And it turned out, as I expected it, that most people feel uh, safer with blue because it reminds them of the sea, the ocean, and it was also uh, link, uh, ranked higher, more highly on, the, on a scale. So people tend to like that colour more, as in colours like orange and yellow. That was the least light colour. Uh, yes. It's making me think of one particular school here in Luxembourg, which is... <laughs> there's a lot of orange around it, actually, <laughs> which you'll see in the Gears of Connection next weekend. Yep. Well, it's interesting, this, because... Uh, well, for many reasons, it's interesting. But what's interesting about it is it could really help interior designers, for example. Yes. One example. And so tell us about um, how you're going to take this idea forward and what your project shows. Um, Well, I wanted to take my project further by not so much towards the marketing part and the consumer behaviour, more towards uh, hospital uh, stuff and psychological research. So how can it help uh, patients... um, deal with certain mental illnesses or with their everyday life using colour. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to take this uh, further and how I'm going to continue with my research, but uh, I'm hoping that one day I have the chance to to do so. Well, that's absolutely wonderful because not too far in the past, we had the results showing, which seems obvious really, that if people in hospitals can look out to greenery through a window or have green plants around Mm. them, they will feel better. (laughs) And uh, when I think of hospitals, I normally think of kind of pretty white walls. And so perhaps if there were some beautiful pictures or colours around that made them feel calm and made them think of nature, their recovery might increase. Yes. Which is benefits all the way around. Exactly. And tell us about the influence your mother has had on you then. Well, um, she was always promoting, uh, she was always promoting everything that I, that I want to research. And uh, well, her influence, when you are all your life gathered and surrounded by, uh, by paintings, all types of colours. Uh, and there was always this part, this aspect of my life that had to do with my safe space and uh, the colours that it, it had in it. Um, Why was that so important to you? Because a lot of people would not even think about using those words, I need this colour to feel safe. Well, uh, my mother never had that, like, she never really felt that, as as she told me, that safety when she was a kid, because she didn't have that much uh, free free chance and free will. Um, So as a kid, she always wanted me to feel like my room was my private space. And uh, it didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about it, that I was doing it. I just ended up doing it and I ended up finding out that, oh, I feel safe like that. That's a very, very wonderful observation by your mother and transferring that thought to you that uh, your room is your own and the colours that you choose for that room can help how you feel. So she's really instilled a a very strong seed there. I'm going to turn to you now, Arnit Day. You're 14, born in Dubai. You're 14? Uh, Yep, I'm 14. Yeah, born in Dubai and you've come here to Luxembourg. How long have you been in Luxembourg now? I think it's been a year and I think two months maybe. Oh, a year and two months. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. Um, So you spent your life up till now in Dubai. Uh, Yes, that's right. And you've designed a pair of glasses 
in, in inverted commas, for blind people using sonar technology, translating that data into an audio description of the wearer's surroundings. Uh, yes. So basically what our project is, it's a pair of glasses uh, which can detect, uh, send out sound waves and then the, the sound waves bounce off an object, uh, say, for example, an, a box. And then when the uh, sound waves bounce back, our uh, glasses receive that data and transfers it into audio. So this uh, project was primarily to help blind people to further understand their environment so that they could have maybe a more safer way to walk Mm -hmm. rather than using a stick. Well, it's fascinating. And I I believe you were inspired by bats in Bambesh Forest. Yes. Uh, So what we did was, me and my partner Punya, uh, one day we went to a forest uh, in Bambesh and we were walking around when we saw two bats sitting on a tree, like very high up. But it was around, it was like the middle of the afternoon, so it was still daytime and we knew bats only functioned mainly at the nighttime. So... And we clearly disturbed them because they, uh, they were startled and they screeched at us. They flew away. But we were so surprised at how gracefully they flew away. And then we knew that they used echolocation to uh, travel bet- uh, between point A and point B during the daytime and during the nighttime. So we found that really interesting and we were wondering how we could use it in human applications. So that's where we came up with the idea. Where have you come across the technology in order to do this? Uh, we actually used Makerspace in Gaysaknapshan, uh, where they helped us a lot and they actually had most of the tools we needed for our project. That's extraordinary. So just yeah. explain to our listeners who may not have heard of Makerspace, what is that? Uh, so Makerspace is a creative space where you can basically make whatever you want, be it uh in, you can tailor your clothes, you can maybe construct a product, you can um, do some wood making. There's a lot of things you can do there. And when is it open? Uh, I think it's open between uh, 9 to, I think it's 6 in every day besides Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So a wonderful opportunity there for people who are in Gaysconhaption. But I think they may have another location somewhere else. Yes, but I only went to the Gaysconhaption one. Well, tell us more about how you worked as a team then to develop this idea, because as you mentioned, you have a partner developing this idea. And how did the idea of making a pair of glasses, because it didn't have to be glasses. Uh, Because we thought that would be the easiest for the visually impaired to wear, because if we uh, made it into another product, we thought it might be uncomfortable for them. We thought because since they wear glasses already to protect their eyes from maybe like dust particles, we thought might as well, you know, uh, kill two birds with one stone. Do you know any blind people? Uh, my grandma actually has uh, glaucoma. So I guess that's also what helped me to uh, make this product. Mm-hmm. And actually yesterday, for the first time ever, I met a blind horse. I'm wondering if your invention can be transferred to other animals. Uh I think that would be a bit difficult, but as soon as we decipher the animal language, I think we can do that. (laughs) Well, I don't because they need to know. I think animals are very clever. I think they'd be able to figure out distances if a bat can use it. I mean, your ideas come from an animal. Yeah, maybe, but we need to to use the proper data then. Absolutely. You must use the proper data. I totally agree with you, Arnett. Now, turning to you, Morgan. Morgan Charno-Pickler, you're originally, well, your your heritage is Hungarian, but you grew up in Canada. So how long have you been with us here in Luxembourg? Um, all my life, actually. Oh, uh, so you so, were born in Canada, but yeah. you grew up here. It's a bit of a complicated story, but my parents uh, went to Canada for my dad's job. And uh, I was born <laughs> And then just three to four months after I was born, we moved to Luxembourg because of my mom's job. Oh, wonderful. So. Well, that, that is not a complicated story at all. I think for Luxembourg, that's a very simple story. And you are 17. Uh, 16. Oh, sorry, you are 16. Now, yeah. tell us about your encryption decryption software, which is called Ormcrypt. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a Python project. Uh, Python is a coding language. And it allows uh, the user to experiment with uh, encoding and decoding and just encryption overall. 
um, and just have fun with it, understand it a bit better, I guess. Why did you develop this? <laughs> um, well, to be honest, it's because uh, my I, I chose computer science as one of my GCSE uh, options. And uh, the first year of computer science, my teacher was uh, not the best. <laughs> Thankfully, I have a new teacher and she's the best ever. Um, but my first year, it wasn't the best and our lessons were quite boring, to be honest. Um, so we kind of took it um, up to ourselves, the students, to kind of teach uh, ourselves coding. Wow. Um, <laughs> we, we literally watched YouTube videos and lesson and on trying to learn how to, how to code and how to... And what was your teacher during this time? Doing during hmm. this time? Um, probably texting. <laughs> okay, let's leave that to one side. Okay, let's get back to you. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then, yeah, we started like teaching one another, basically, uh, just watching YouTube videos and a bunch of things just for fun, basically. Well, that's extraordinary that you had the self-motivation to do this in a class that you could have otherwise been doing something else. <laughs> so you're clearly self-motivated. Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy it because it's kind of like art in a way. I know it sounds really weird because art, you know, it's all with your hands and craftsmanship no, it's creativity and everything. creativity in a different way. Yeah. It, it feels a lot like you have a blank Canvas. code. Yeah, like it's it's nothing. And then out of that, you slowly create something that works and that you can run and uh, do experiments in and, you know, just. So you have to explain to me because I am not a computer scientist. And I think whatever way my life trajectory will go, it will not <laughs> lend itself towards computer science. What does this encryption decryption software do? All right. Um, so encryption, just mm -hmm. a little um, explanation, I guess. It's basically the scrambling of data for to prevent malicious um, access to it. So, for example, I think WhatsApp is the easiest example. For example, when you text your friend uh, your address, instead of that going through the internet as the plain text that you wrote, so, you know, whatever your address is, it's going to use an encryption algorithm which changes that uh, into something completely unreadable. So if someone would access the, the channels of communication between you and your friend, instead of seeing your address, they would see some nonsense Uh, and a bunch of random characters, which wouldn't make sense. However, your friend who has a decryption key uh, on their phone um, will be able to decrypt it. Obviously not manually, WhatsApp does that itself uh, by its own. And then they will receive the actual message that you uh, intended. However, anyone without the key won't be able to see it and will just see uh, encrypt, well, scrambled data, encrypted data that uh, isn't readable. So what makes your ORMcrypt different to what's already available on the market? Um, well, the way it works, it, it's, the truth is encryption is an extremely, extremely complex uh, mathematical thing as well. Uh, the way WhatsApp does it and huge companies, Facebook and, and etc. is with huge prime numbers and just a lot of maths that I don't understand, to be honest. Um, and m the way mine works is basically it takes a um, character from a list, so from all the available characters, and it has a key which is basically the, um, the uh, kind of dictionary, the lookup dictionary of which character is equal to what other character. And that's, that key is randomized and can be randomized and uh, shared and et cetera. And that's how you decrypt when it's encrypted and encrypt um, when it's um, raw text. And uh, yeah, it's, it's basically just a lookup dictionary to the simplest of its form. Basically it's A equals Z and Uh, so on. Obviously, not necessarily said. You can change that and everything, and randomize it, etc. Well, your projects are extraordinary because I know the workload <coughs> at secondary school is not light, and the fact that you've managed to do this in your spare time is really superb. What do your teachers think of your work? Well, I was really encouraged by my school to to do the project, and in the end of my school year, I was also um, given a nice certificate from the school thanking me for doing so. Um, but yeah, as long as you put a small effort every week, do some research, it is more than possible to do it. And I just want to bring up something you told me as well before we started, which is that you're dyslexic. So do you feel that has uh, increased your creativity in different ways or do you think that's hindered you in any way with the current school system that we have? Well, I was tested when I was a little kid and I've known it for a long time. It has made some things difficult and I had to take a lot of time to realize what is my method of learning. So it has slowed me down in some ways, but I've learned to cope with it. Uh, it definitely has uh, brought some creativity because I 
uh, tried to find so many different ways that I can study, I can learn, which has made me more creative. But yeah, I don't think that has stopped me so far. It's wonderful to hear you talk about that, to give a lot of uh, you know, hope and courage to <laughs> lots of other people. It's very, very common these days as well. And so yes. lucky for you that you were diagnosed, if that's the correct word, when you were young, to know that you needed to learn in a different way. So all of you now have awards. What does that mean you'll go on to do? Uh, so in the future, I, w- I really want to further develop my project. Because Before you further develop your project, I believe this means you can go to another country with your competition idea. Yes, we went to uh, Morocco a couple months ago and we uh, did an exhibition to present our ideas to uh, the Moroccan public. And how did that go? Uh, I think it went very well. Uh, we <laughs> met a lot of new people and we exchanged ideas. I think there was people from four countries, Morocco, Spain, France, and obviously Luxembourg. Yeah. Uh, so we all exchanged ideas and it was a really nice time. It's an extraordinary had, opportunity. Yeah. Who else went to Morocco? You I did. did. Yeah. And yeah. what did you gain from that experience? Um, a lot, to be honest, actually. Um, not only what he was saying, which is uh, correct, the exchange of ideas, just different people meeting them. It was really lovely. Um, everyone had you know, different point of views and etc. And just talking to them was really lovely. And for me, Morocco overall was also quite a learning experience from just the life that we live here in Luxembourg and just (laughs) how um, privileged of a bubble we're in. I think it was a very good experience from that point of view where I just went into another country, into a completely different culture that I um, haven't been to, haven't didn't really know a lot about and um, had the opportunity to learn about it and just see how different it is. And... um, Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. appreciate where, where we are. Yeah, we, we really should take a, a culture check on ourselves on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> and Kate, I believe you weren't in Morocco. Where did you go? I was supposed to go to France, but I couldn't due to exams. And oh. <laughs> oh, what a shame. But uh, how very good of you. And next time, next time. Susanna, I'd like to bring you in again, really. And I'd like you to tell us about the students that you meet and what opportunities you give them. Because what you give them in, in way of opportunity is absolutely extraordinary, I think. Yes, absolutely. It's amazing. Um, well, we already have great examples here uh, through these uh, three uh, wonderful young freshers. But yeah, of course, the Fondation Jeune Scientifique Luxembourg aims to, to support our youngsters to uh, further pursue their interest and commitments in science. So, for example, with Science Next, we are proposing coaching, workshops, but also advices for them to well proceed in their scientific um, project. Uh, with this coming Expo Sciences Luxembourg, we will also try to to create this exchange platform. So that means for the international part, most countries over the world uh, organize similar contests uh, as the National Young Fisher Contest and the foundation has partnered with some of them. So we are uh, developing strong uh, partnership so with Morocco, for example. And this is how the Expo Sciences Luxembourg became an official prize for contestants coming from abroad. So um, we're trying to um, create that environment where they can exchange scientific idea, but also their respective culture. Mm-hmm. So this is really... Um, it's much more beyond science. Yeah, absolutely. It is about human experience. Yeah, and we, interchange. And I feel, you know, I, I've said it before, but uh, what I see all the time, and I think really, uh, well, everybody here in their conversations has demonstrated this, that um, there is always a crossover, this this cross-pollination of ideas between projects between people and you can only gain from them. Hannah, you've been listening to these young scientists around you and you've had a lifetime, a career in science. What do you think of them? Well, it's uh, exciting, always this exciting with uh, young, uh, curious uh, scientists. And I think uh, that they will have a very nice uh, life uh, in in ahead of them because uh, being curious and being uh, uh, interested in how things uh, fit together uh, it, it is such a passion uh, it becomes a passion when you get uh, more and more deeper into the subject and it will g- give you a happy life 
Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It will do because you ask questions. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. generally human curiosity, yeah, it is. which leads me to another question. And we need them. We need them. <laughs> you do. We need the curious people and we need the people who can fix any questions we have and, and fix problems we may have caused in the world. On the point of curiosity, just going back to your love and passion for the Neanderthal world, how can we know if they were curious people or do we know it just by what they demonstrated in the way they've lived as far as we can understand it? Uh, that the Neanderthals were curious? Well, I think that they uh, they were uh, spreading all over Europe and you have to be uh, curious and you have to be adapted to very different environmental situations to be able to do so. Uh, although I think the difference between the Neanderthals and the, the modern human is that they live they lived in smaller groups, in family groups, while the uh, modern human, they could live in up to 150, maybe 200 uh, people, not only family members, but uh, also uh, uh, other people from other groups. And this makes um, it very different that you are, um, you have uh, many people to think and many people to exchange ideas and to solve problems. And by this, I think they were more successful than the Neanderthals. Well, that's such a brilliant point because it comes back to exactly what Susanna said, which is that uh, allowing these young minds to travel to places and and develop this relationship with Morocco, for instance, just one of the countries, you are opening minds to different continents. I mean, we're able to travel in such a wonderful way. I know we shouldn't travel by plane too much, climate change and all that, but we can travel through computers these days. So there's lots of different ways we can have these conversations and engage and spread ideas, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if you come uh, to see uh, the laureates during the exhibition of the Expo Sciences, you will see how how impressive these young people are. I mean, we already have some example, but this year we also have the honor to welcome two laureates from the biggest European uh, Young Scientist Contest for so, so the UCIS contest organized by the European Commission coming from Israel and Estonia. So a lot of mixture of cultures and scientific idea uh, that creates that scientific hub and uh, and creative thinking curious creative thinking so I just want to then turn to all of my young scientists again and I want to ask you what you think you might go on to do in the future or what excites you about the work that you're doing Kate I'll start with you so uh, I'm planning not though to participate with a whole different uh, subject and topic, which is based on male birth control and male contraceptives. Aha! Right. Yes. Well, tell us how you think this might work because it didn't work before. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not much that we can do on a practical level, but we can search it theoretically and see where we are at the moment. So that's what I'm going to do with uh, another girl, uh, Anna. Um, uh, so yeah, so we're hoping that we're going to cover it on a theoretical part. Do you think you should get a boy on the team, a male on the team? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you might need his voice to kind of just uh, strengthen your argument. Yes. Yes. And um, on that point, I mean, it was something that was uh, thought about before, male contraception. And from your psychology mind, how do you think you would convince men to take it? Well, I think that's there's going to be a lot of pressure put on by women because we've been doing this for a long time and I think some of us are quite tired of doing so. And uh, upside down, from what I've been reading, uh, they're quite similar when it comes to side effects. So I think there should be a balance as into, you know, and not so much pressure on women to take it while, uh, y- yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of psychological pressure from women to come towards men. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderfully put. Well, I'll turn to you now, Morgan. Oh, no, I'm not that lovely. No, we won't go into that. <laughs> what do you think your future holds for you? What do you want to go on to do? Um, regarding my project or overall? Uh, overall, but okay. maybe it's linked to your project. Yeah, uh, so with my project, I have been working on it less, but I still come back to it uh, from time to time to um, develop it more. Um, I feel often that it's kind of a finished product product, and I'm scared into getting into it and then, you know, developing it too far. I know there's no such thing, of course, but with A-levels, it's a lot of school stress and um, it but is But I mean your future, really, beyond the, yes. the project, <laughs> but your ideas and what you might hope to do in the future. Um, I'm hoping to pursue the acting career. Um, I'm really, really into theatre uh, and drama 
Uh, it's one of my A-level subjects. So is computer science. So it's it's still there. <laughs> I still love computer science. But um, yeah. Acting. That is the most surprising thing I've heard all morning. I, my jaw is literally dropping. I mean, not to say that I don't think you can act, of course, but it's just the fact that you've just told me about your encryption decryption coding uh, <laughs> program. And then you're saying you'd like to go and pursue acting. Well, of course, you can do both. Yes, yes. Um, I've been doing acting for literally, almost literally all my life um, for nine years now. And it's something I just always enjoyed. Um, and I mean, I enjoy coding as well. I think coding is more like a hobby but of course i think it's also one of the reasons i'm studying it is kind of as a plan b because let's be honest acting is hard to a riskier yeah, yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> well i think that's marvelous and i think you should if i could give a tiny piece of advice keep both going on in parallel because at some point one might pay for the other and vice versa so <laughs> exactly. and i think you're you're going to grow up in a world where you can have multifaceted careers and it's a it's a very good thing to do so how wonderful for you well congratulations and we can't wait to see you on stage in the future and i'm going to turn finally to you what is your thoughts for the future you're only 14 aren't it so so what do you what do you enjoy doing what do you think you'll go on to do um so that's actually i have a wide spectrum of choices i'm sure you do uh so on one hand i actually been playing football since i was three. Oh. so i really enjoy football <laughs> that's another one of my passions and then uh I've also written a book. A poetry book, no yes. less. At the age of 10, yeah. you had it published. And uh, I think you can get that on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give a link to that. Why poetry? Uh, it's because when I started writing when I was around seven, and I always wrote poetries because I was a bit too lazy to write a full book. <laughs> so just like, you know... Made us uh, most seven year olds don't think about writing full books, <laughs> yeah. So then, also, I really enjoy public speaking, and I've done a TEDx before. Uh, so, so and uh, regards to my in regards to my project, I think uh, I'm gonna further develop it to maybe uh, uh, maybe sell it to the general public to the visually impaired because I really hope that it can. Uh, help them and I hope to sell it at like a very minimal cost mm -hmm. so people in the poorer parts of the globe can access it well I think that you have a very bright future ahead of you <laughs> I have no worries at all for you there <laughs> I think you all have wonderful futures ahead of you and I want to thank you all so much for coming in today to tell us about the wonderful ideas that you've had congratulations congratulations to you Susanna and Edward who is uh, quietly standing behind us here with his camera uh, for all of the work that you do to encourage young people to come into the, the science community. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah, it's yes, uh, really motivated when I see all the bright mind around us. So, yeah, it really, we are here to support them. It is, it is lovely to have you all here. And Hannah, I can't thank you enough for, for giving us your backstory for, you know, having done so much for animal welfare across Europe in your research. I know it's a team effort, but you were part of that team. So thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you have any ideas or any stories you'd like to share with me here at RTL Today, I always want to hear from you. You can email me anytime, find me on social media, write to RTL Today Radio. It would be a pleasure to hear your stories and have you on my show. Thank you so much for listening. The Lisa Burke Show.